Nero, Part Three of the Lives of the Twelve Caesars by Gaius Suetonius Tranquillus. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Philippa. The Lives of the Twelve Caesars by Gaius Suetonius Tranquillus, translated by Alexander Thompson and edited by T. Forrester. Nero, Part Three, Paragraphs Thirty-Two to Forty. But being disappointed in his expectations of this resource, and reduced to such difficulties for want of money, that he was obliged to defer paying his troops, and the rewards due to the veterans, he resolved upon supplying his necessities by means of false accusations and plunder. In the first place he ordered that if any freedman, without sufficient reason, bore the name of the family to which he belonged, the half, instead of three-fourths of his estate, should be brought into the exchequer at his decease, also that the estates of all such persons as had not in their wills been mindful of their prince should be confiscated, and that the lawyers who had drawn or dictated such wills should be liable to a fine. He ordained likewise that all words and actions upon which any informer could ground a prosecution should be deemed treason. He demanded an equivalent for the crowns which the cities of Greece had at any time offered him in the solemn games. Having forbade any one to use the colours of amethyst and Tyrian purple, he privately sent a person to sell a few ounces of them upon the day of the Nundinae, and then shut up all the merchant's shops on the pretext that his edict had been violated. It is said that as he was playing and singing in the theatre, observing a married lady dressed in the purple which he had prohibited, he pointed her out to his procurators, upon which she was immediately dragged out of her seat, and not only stripped of her clothes, but her property. He never nominated a person to any office without saying to him, You know what I want, and let us take care that nobody has anything he can call his own. At last he rifled many temples of the rich offerings with which they were stored, and melted down all the gold and silver statues, and amongst them those of the Penates, which Galba afterwards restored. He began the practice of parricide and murder with Claudius himself, for although he was not the contriver of his death, he was privy to the plot. Nor did he make any secret of it, but used afterwards to commend in a Greek proverb mushrooms as food fit for the gods, because Claudius had been poisoned with them. He traduced his memory both by word and deed in the grossest manner, one while charging him with folly, another with cruelty. For he used to say by way of jest that he had ceased morari amongst men, pronouncing the first syllable long, and treated as null many of his decrees and ordinances, as made by a doting old blockhead. He enclosed the place where his body was burnt with only a low wall of rough masonry, he attempted to poison Britannicus, as much out of envy because he had a sweeter voice as from apprehension of what might ensue from the respect which the people entertained for his father's memory. He employed for this purpose a woman named Locusta, who had been a witness against some persons guilty of like practices. But the poison she gave him, working more slowly than he expected, and only causing a purge, he sent for the woman, and beat her with his own hand, charging her with administering an antidote instead of poison, and upon her alleging an excuse that she had given Britannicus but a gentle mixture in order to prevent suspicion. "'Think you,' said he, "'that I am afraid of the Julian law. 
and obliged her to prepare in his own chamber and before his eyes as quick and strong a dose as possible. This he tried upon a kid, but the animal lingering for five hours before it expired, he ordered her to go to work again, and when she had done he gave the poison to a pig, which dying immediately he commanded the potion to be brought into the eating-room and given to Britannicus while he was at supper with him. The prince had no sooner tasted it than he sunk on the floor, Nero, meanwhile, pretending to the guests that it was only a fit of the falling sickness, to which, he said, he was subject. He buried him the following day, in a mean and hurried way, during violent storms of rain. He gave Locusta a pardon, and rewarded her with a great estate in land, placing some disciples with her to be instructed in her trade. His mother, being used to make strict inquiry into what he said or did, and to reprimand him with the freedom of a parent, he was so much offended that he endeavoured to expose her to public resentment by frequently pretending a resolution to quit the government and retire to Rhodes. Soon afterwards he deprived her of all honour and power, took from her the guard of Roman and German soldiers, banished her from the palace and from his society, and persecuted her in every way he could contrive, employing persons to harass her when at Rome with lawsuits, and to disturb her in her retirement from town with the most scurrilous and abusive language, following her about by land and sea. But being terrified with her menaces and violent spirit, he resolved upon her destruction, and thrice attempted it by poison. Finding, however, that she had previously secured herself by antidotes, he contrived machinery by which the floor over her bedchamber might be made to fall upon her while she was asleep in the night, this design miscarrying likewise, through the little caution used by those who were in the secret, his next stratagem was to construct a ship which could be easily shivered, in hopes of destroying her either by drowning, or by the deck above her cabin crushing her in its fall. Accordingly, under colour of a pretended reconciliation, he wrote her an extremely affectionate letter, inviting her to Baie to celebrate with him the festival of Minerva. He had given private orders to the captains of the galleys which were to attend her to shatter to pieces the ship in which she had come, by falling foul of it, but in such a manner that it might appear to be done accidentally. He prolonged the entertainment for the more convenient opportunity of executing the plot in the night, and at her return from Bauli, instead of the old ship which had conveyed her to Baie, he offered that which he had contrived for her destruction. He attended her to the vessel in a very cheerful mood, and at parting with her kissed her breasts, after which he sat up very late in the night, waiting with great anxiety to learn the issue of his project. But receiving information that everything had fallen out contrary to his wish, and that she had saved herself by swimming, not knowing what course to take, upon her freedman, Lucius Agarinus, bringing word with great joy that she was safe and well, he privately dropped a poniard by him. He then commanded the freedman to be seized and put in chains, under pretense of his having been employed by his mother to assassinate him, at the same time ordering her to be put to death, and giving out that, to avoid punishment for her intended crime, she had laid violent hands upon herself. Other circumstances still more horrible are related on good authority, as that he went to view her corpse, and handling her limbs pointed out some blemishes, and commended other points and that, growing thirsty during the survey, he called for drink. 
yet he was never afterwards able to bear the stings of his own conscience for this atrocious act, although encouraged by the congratulatory addresses of the army, the senate, and people. He frequently affirmed that he was haunted by his mother's ghost, and persecuted with the whips and burning torches of the Furies. Nay, he attempted by magical rites to bring up her ghost from below and soften her rage against him. When he was in Greece, he durst not attend the celebration of the Eleusinian Mysteries, at the initiation of which impious and wicked persons are warned by the voice of the herald from approaching the rites. Besides the murder of his mother, he had been guilty of that of his aunt, for being obliged to keep her bed in consequence of a complaint in her bowels, he paid her a visit, and she, being then advanced in years, stroking his downy chin in the tenderness of affection, said to him, "'May I but live to see the day when this is shaved for the first time, and I shall then die contented.' He turned, however, to those about him, made a jest of it, saying that he would have his beard immediately taken off, and ordered the physicians to give her more violent purgatives. He seized upon her estate before she had expired, suppressing her will, that he might enjoy the whole himself. He had besides Octavia two other wives, Poppaea Sabina, whose father had borne the office of Quaestor, and who had been married before to a Roman knight, and after her Statilia Messalina, great-granddaughter of Taurus, who was twice consul, and received the honour of a triumph. To obtain possession of her, he put to death her husband, Atticus Vestinus, who was then consul. He soon became disgusted with Octavia, and ceased from having any intercourse with her, and being censured by his friends for it, he replied, "'She ought to be satisfied with having the rank and appendages of his wife.' Soon afterwards he made several attempts, but in vain, to strangle her, and then divorced her for barrenness. But the people, disapproving of the divorce, and making severe comments upon it, he also banished her. At last he put her to death upon a charge of adultery so impudent and false, that when all those who were put to the torture positively denied their knowledge of it, he suborned his pedagogue, Anicetus, to affirm that he had secretly intrigued with and debauched her. He married Poppaea twelve days after the divorce of Octavia, and entertained a great affection for her, but nevertheless killed her with a kick which he gave her when she was big with child and in bad health, only because she found fault with him for returning late from driving his chariot. He had by her a daughter, Claudia Augusta, who died an infant. There was no person at all connected with him who escaped his deadly and unjust cruelty. Under pretense of her being engaged in a plot against him, he put to death Antonia, Claudius's daughter, who refused to marry him after the death of Poppaea. In the same way he destroyed all who were allied to him either by blood or marriage, amongst whom was young Aulus Plautinus. He first compelled him to submit to his unnatural lust, and then ordered him to be executed, crying out, Let my mother bestow her kisses on my successor thus defiled, pretending that he had been his mother's paramour, and by her encouraged to aspire to the empire. His stepson Rufinus Crispinus, Poppaea's son, though a minor, he ordered to be drowned in the sea, while he was fishing by his own slaves, because he was reported to act frequently amongst his playfellows the part of a general or an emperor. He banished Tuscus, his nurse's son, for presuming, when he was procurator of Egypt, to wash in the baths which had been constructed in expectation of his own coming. 
Seneca, his preceptor, he forced to kill himself, though upon his desiring leave to retire, and offering to surrender his estate, he solemnly swore that there was no foundation for his suspicions, and that he would perish himself sooner than hurt him. Having promised Burrus, the praetorian prefect, a remedy for a swelling in his throat, he sent him poison. Some old rich freedmen of Claudius, who had formerly not only promoted his adoption, but were also instrumental to his advancement to the empire, and had been his governors, he took off by poison, given them in their meat or drink. Nor did he proceed with less cruelty against those who were not of his family. A blazing star, which is vulgarly supposed to portend destruction to kings and princes, appeared above the horizon several nights successively. He felt great anxiety on account of this phenomenon, and being informed by one Babylus, an astrologer, that princes were used to expiate such omens by the sacrifice of illustrious persons, and so avert the danger foreboded to their own persons, by bringing it on the heads of their chief men, he resolved on the destruction of the principal nobility in Rome. He was the more encouraged to do this, because he had some plausible pretense for carrying it into execution, from the discovery of two conspiracies against him, the former and more dangerous of which was that formed by Piso, and discovered at Rome, the other was that of Vinicius at Beneventum. The conspirators were brought to their trials, loaded with triple fetters. Some ingenuously confessed the charge, others avowed that they thought the design against his life an act of favour for which he was obliged to them, as it was impossible in any other way than by death to relieve a person rendered infamous by crimes of the greatest enormity. The children of those who had been condemned were banished the city, and afterwards either poisoned or starved to death. It is asserted that some of them, with their tutors, and the slaves who carried their satchels, were all poisoned together at one dinner, and others not suffered to seek their daily bread. From this period he butchered, without distinction or quarter, all whom his caprice suggested as objects for his cruelty, and upon the most frivolous pretenses. To mention only a few. Salvidianus Orphetus was accused of letting out three taverns attached to his house in the Forum to some cities for the use of their deputies at Rome. The charge against Cassius Longinus, a lawyer who had lost his sight, was that he kept amongst the busts of his ancestors that of Caius Cassius, who was concerned in the death of Julius Caesar. The only charge objected against Paetus Thrasea was that he had a melancholy cast of features and looked like a schoolmaster. He allowed but one hour to those whom he obliged to kill themselves, and to prevent delay he sent them physicians, to cure them immediately if they lingered beyond that time, for so he called bleeding them to death. There was at that time an Egyptian of a most voracious appetite, who would digest raw flesh or anything else that was given him, it was credibly reported that the emperor was extremely desirous of furnishing him with living men to tear and devour. Being elated with his great success in the perpetration of crimes, he declared that no prince before himself ever knew the extent of his power. He threw out strong intimations that he would not even spare the senators who survived, but would entirely extirpate that order, and put the provinces and armies into the hands of the Roman knights and his own freedmen. It is certain that he never gave or vouchsafed to allow any one the customary kiss, either on entering or departing, or even returned a salute. 
and at the inauguration of a work, the cut through the isthmus, he, with a loud voice amidst the assembled multitude, uttered a prayer, that the undertaking might prove fortunate for himself and the Roman people, without taking the smallest notice of the Senate. He spared, moreover, neither the people of Rome nor the capital of his country. Somebody in conversation saying, Emutanontos gaia micteto puri, when I am dead, let fire devour the world. Nay, said he, let it be while I am living, emus dontos. And he acted accordingly, for, pretending to be disgusted with the old buildings and the narrow and winding streets, he set the city on fire so openly that many of consular rank caught his own household servants on their property, with tow and torches in their hands, but durst not meddle with them. There being near his golden house some granaries, the sight of which he exceedingly coveted, they were battered as if with machines of war, and set on fire, the walls being built of stone. During six days and seven nights this terrible devastation continued, the people being obliged to fly to the tombs and monuments for lodging and shelter. Meanwhile a vast number of stately buildings, the houses of generals celebrated in former times, and even then still decorated with the spoils of war, were laid in ashes, as well as the temples of the gods, which had been vowed and dedicated by the kings of Rome, and afterwards in the Punic and Gallic wars. In short, everything that was remarkable and worthy to be seen which time had spared. This fire he beheld from a tower in the house of Mechinus, and, being greatly delighted, as he said, with the beautiful effects of the conflagration, he sung a poem to the ruin of Troy, in the tragic dress he used on the stage. To turn this calamity to his own advantage by plunder and rapine, he promised to remove the bodies of those who had perished in the fire, and clear the rubbish at his own expense, suffering no one to meddle with the remains of their property but he not only received but exacted contributions on account of the loss, until he had exhausted the means both of the provinces and private persons. To these terrible and shameful calamities brought upon the people by their prince were added some proceeding from misfortune. Such were a pestilence, by which within the space of one autumn there died no less than thirty thousand persons, as appeared from the registers in the Temple of Libitina, a great disaster in Britain, where two of the principal towns belonging to the Romans were plundered, and a dreadful havoc made both amongst our troops and allies, a shameful discomfiture of the army of the East, where in Armenia the legions were obliged to pass under the yoke, and it was with great difficulty that Syria was retained. Amidst all these disasters it was strange, and indeed particularly remarkable, that he bore nothing more patiently than the scurrilous language and railing abuse which was in every one's mouth, treating no class of persons with more gentleness than those who assailed him with invective and lampoons. Many things of that kind were posted up about the city, or otherwise published, both in Greek and Latin, such as these. Neron, Orestes, Alcmaion, Metroctonoi. Neonimpton, Neron, Idian meter apectenin. Orestes and Alcmaeon, Nero too, the lustful Nero, worst of all the crew, fresh from his bridal, their own mothers slew. Quis neget aeneae magna de stirpe Neronem, sustulit hic matrem, sustulit ille patrem. 
sprung from Aeneas, pious, wise, and great, who says that Nero is degenerate? Safe through the flames one bore his sire, the other, to save himself, took off his loving mother. Dum tendit citaram noster, dum cornua partus, noster erit paean, ille hecate belletes. His lyre to harmony our Nero strings, his arrows o'er the plain the Parthian wings. Ours call the tuneful paean famed in war, the other Phoebus name, the god who shoots afar. Roma domus fiet, veos migrate quidites, sinon et veos occupat ista domus. All Rome will be one house, to vei fly, should it not stretch to vei by and by. But he neither made any inquiry after the authors, nor when information was laid before the senate against some of them, would he allow a severe sentence to be passed. Isidorus, the cynic philosopher, said to him aloud as he was passing along the streets, You sing the misfortunes of Nauplius well, but behave badly yourself. And Datus, a comic actor, when repeating these words in the piece, Farewell, father, farewell, mother, mimicked the gestures of persons drinking and swimming, significantly alluding to the deaths of Claudius and Agrippina, and on uttering the last clause, Orcus vobistucit pedes, you stand this moment on the brink of Orcus, he plainly intimated his application of it to the precarious position of the senate. Yet Nero only banished the player and philosopher from the city and Italy, either because he was insensible to shame, or from apprehension that if he discovered his vexation, still keener things might be said of him. The world, after tolerating such an emperor for little less than fourteen years, at length forsook him. The Gauls, headed by Julius Vindex, who at that time governed the province as Propraetor, being the first to revolt. Nero had been formally told by astrologers that it would be his fortune to be at last deserted by all the world, and this occasioned that celebrated saying of his, an artist can live in any country, by which he meant to offer as an excuse for his practice of music, that it was not only his amusement as a prince, but might be his support when reduced to a private station. Yet some of the astrologers promised him in his forlorn state the rule of the East, and some in express words the kingdom of Jerusalem. But the greater part of them flattered him with assurances of his being restored to his former fortune, and being most inclined to believe the latter prediction upon losing Britain and Armenia, he imagined he had run through all the misfortunes which the fates had decreed him. But when, upon consulting the oracle of Apollo at Delphi, he was advised to beware of the seventy-third year, as if he were not to die till then, never thinking of Galba's age, he conceived such hopes not only of living to advanced years, but of constant and singular good fortune, that having lost some things of great value by shipwreck, he scrupled not to say amongst his friends that the fishes would bring them back to him. At Naples he heard of the insurrection in Gaul, on the anniversary of the day on which he killed his mother, and bore it with so much unconcern as to excite a suspicion that he was really glad of it, since he had now a fair opportunity of plundering those wealthy provinces by the right of war. Immediately going to the gymnasium, he witnessed the exercise of the wrestlers with the greatest delight. Being interrupted at supper with letters which brought yet worse news, 
he expressed no greater resentment than only to threaten the rebels. For eight days together he never attempted to answer any letters nor give any orders, but buried the whole affair in profound silence. End of Nero, part three.